And now, on Book TV's Afterwards, Washington Times national security columnist Bill Gertz discusses China's efforts to become a global military and economic superpower. He's interviewed by Paula Dobriansky, former Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs in the George W. Bush administration. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Bill, congratulations, and thanks so much for joining us today. Your book, we're going to cover a lot of ground, Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. So first of all, why did you decide to write the book? Uh, This is my eighth book, and uh, in 2000, I wrote a book called The China Threat, which was a play on what Beijing calls the China Threat Theory, and it was amazing in that it really predicted uh, the emergence of a major threat posed by communist China. Um, Ever since I wrote that book, um, I've tried to do another China book, and every publisher I approached uh, said, uh, we won't write a single topic China book. You can have chapters on China, but we won't have a, a single topic. So why, why was that? Uh, I, I really don't know. It was uh, <laughs> their interests or their concerns about whether they would sell. And uh, finally, I, I dug in my heels and I said, it's time to do it, another book on the threat from China at it, as it is becoming greater than it was way back when uh, the China threat was published in 2000. Well, <laughs> your book is very timely. But let me ask you about this title. It's Deceiving the Sky, Mm -hmm. and then you go on Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. The second half, it's very clear and understandable. Now, what is Deceiving the Sky? Where does that come from? Well, the communists in China are steeped in ancient strategy. And deceiving, and many people know of Sun Tzu, the the famous strategist who comes from what is known as the Warring States era. This is like 400 to 200 B.C., Um, There's also a book called The 36 Strategies, uh, whose author is not quite clear, but it's it's a compendium of military strategies that would allow a weaker power to defeat a a stronger power, which is uh, Beijing's main goal today. Um, The very first strategy is called Deceive the Sky to Cross the Ocean. And its meaning goes back to a legend, and the legend is that the emperor, uh, one of his generals, wanted the emperor to go to war with a neighboring province and the emperor was reluctant. So the general uh, arranged for dinner at, a, at the home of a wealthy peasant. And when the emperor arrived, he stepped into the house and he felt it move. And he realized that it wasn't a house after all. It turned out to have been a boat. And so the emperor was then sailing on his way with the general uh, to this neighboring province. And he had to decide, do I go to war with the province or return home? And he decided to go to war. And the point is that the general, even in, uh, you have to even deceive the sky. In Chinese uh, legend, the sky is the emperor, and the emperor is actually considered a godlike figure. So you have to even deceive God in order to achieve your your objectives. Uh, To me, this is exactly the strategy that the Chinese Communist uh, Party and Beijing are using today, specifically directed at the United States. I was very struck by the fact that you dedicated the book to the Chinese people. Now, before we go into the content and U.S. policy towards China, tell us why you dedicated the book to the Chinese people. 
Well, I think the Chinese people need to be liberated from this, the horrors of the communist regime. Um, we don't, I, I remember doing a, a debate in New York City many years ago, and uh, there was, it was whether China was a threat, and on the side that was said that China wasn't a threat was a businessman who came up to me after and said, you know, Bill, I've been doing business in China for 20 years and I've never met a communist. And I was shocked and I said, well, you should, uh, you should visit the People's Liberation Army Museum in Beijing, which I have done in the past, and there you will see all the founding fathers of, of communism. And that's uh, even Mao and Stalin, uh, Engels, Marx. Um, so it's, it's really, uh, I think, important to understand this aspect, that uh, this, this regime is truly a, uh, going after global supremacy in a way that it hadn't done in the past. Well, if you were in Beijing today and you were before a Chinese audience and you, it was mentioned that you dedicated yes. the book to them, what would you say to them well, directly? I would, I would say, well, <laughs> there's a big myth in, in China that uh, the Chinese party is one with the people. I remember a Chinese colonel came to visit me at the Washington Times many years ago and he said, he sa I said, look, my beef is not with the Chinese people, it's with the Communist Party of China. And he said, oh, no, no, no. There's no difference <clears throat> between the Communist Party of China and the Chinese people. <clears throat> That's a, a huge lie. 1.4 billion people are enslaved under this system. Uh, there are as many as 93 million Communist Party members. But for the most part, the people of China do not want that system. They've tasted a little bit of prosperity, mainly in the main cities. They've tasted a little bit of freedom. Many of them have traveled to the United States. And so I really felt that uh, I wanted to dedicate the book to freeing the Chinese people from the Communist Party of China. Now, at the beginning of the book, you go into how we got it wrong. In particular, you cite back in 1999 that the Defense Intelligence Agency issued a report. And basically, that report minimized, uh, uh, basically, that China was a threat. Mm -hmm. But then you juxtapose that with some 20 years later, you basically indicate that Army Lieutenant General Robert Ashley had, in fact, indicated that communist ideology had not changed at all mm -hmm. as a motivating force for China's rulers. Mm -hmm. And basically, the report that was issued then really documented how and why China is a threat. In fact, one data point that really struck me was the $600 billion annually in stolen technologies and intellectual yes. property, rather substantial. So how did, how did we get it wrong? What mm -hmm. was happening in 1999 and then why 20, yeah. we're, 20 years later it changed? Sure. I, I like to tell the story <clears throat> that back in the late 90s, I was writing a story on the PLA and at that time, the Pentagon was more press-friendly, and they would give you background briefings. So I went to DIA, and they gave me a background briefing, which was fairly vanilla in terms of what they had to say. Uh, but at the end of the briefing, a colonel came in and said, the general would like to see you. So the general was the director of DIA, and he sat at the end of a table and told me uh, that China was not a threat. And I was very surprised. Um, I would expect that kind of, and my question was to him was, well, why do you think that? And he said, basically because of their statements. And this was astounding to me. I could understand that for <clears throat> policy officials who want to spin a reporter or even uh, civilian intelligence people. But for the top military 
intelligence officer to say that this nuclear-armed communist dictatorship, which has missiles capable of uh, hitting our cities, is not a threat. I really felt deeply that there was a deception operation underway. Um, fast forward a couple of years later, and uh, we, we, were, we revealed, and I revealed it in one of my earlier books, that one of the top analysts at DIA turned out to be a Chinese spy and that he was passing information. So I, I believe that it was China's penetration of DIA at that time who was giving this false information. Um, General Ashley, the current DIA director, has obviously made a, taken a, a major shift, and that's a reflection of overall Trump administration policy. They've, they've made a, a tectonic shift in policy towards China and by identifying it as a strategic competitor. And that's filtering its way throughout uh, the government bureaucracy right now. Well, in fact, let me pick up on that uh, with the advent of the Trump administration. In fact, back in December of uh, uh, 2017, no, 2017 it was, when the national security strategy was released, it does state that both Russia and China are strategic competitors. But you also define China as not just only a strategic competitor, but also a threat. Mm -hmm. And you really document that in the book. Mm -hmm. Elaborate a little bit more on that. Sure. Um, my view, the, the first step in finding solutions, whether it's for policies <clears throat> or anything else, is to identify the threat. Uh, without understanding that, uh, we will never be able to solve the problem of, of China. And so I looked at this and said, what is, it that, what is it that makes up the threat from China? And I spend a lot of time looking at uh, Chinese ideology. Uh, I look at their weapon systems, their intelligence operations, their influence operations, their financial warfare, and it's, uh, it's quite an impressive array of threats. Uh, in my view, it is an existential threat unlike faced by the United States in any time in its history. But there was another dimension, and that is in the Trump administration, the link has been made between American national security and the issue of economic uh, uh, security. And that's really a centerpiece mm -hmm. that has been developed. Um, to some extent, you could argue some of that's been there, but in terms of the approach, it's very hard-hitting, and it's really having a significant impact particularly at a time when China itself has been confronted with its own economic woes. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. wouldn't you add that it's not only the military component, not only mm -hmm. uh, digital uh, power influence, but also the economic mm -hmm. uh, dimension that is absolutely mm -hmm. essential here? Yes, absolutely. I have an entire chapter on Chinese economic warfare. But uh, before I get into that, I, I wanted to point out about uh, this this idea of the multifaceted threat from China. Um, <clears throat> the reason that the, the threat has become worse is that uh, we, the United States, has been engaged in what I describe as a 30 to 40 year gamble, uh, strategic gamble. And that gamble is uh, began uh, under Henry Kissinger when we aligned with Beijing against Moscow during the Cold War. And it was uh, designed to uh, basically help defeat the Soviet Union. Um, again, the U.S. at that time bailed out a struggling uh, Communist Party of China. And, uh, but after the fall of the uh, uh, Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union in December 91, 
uh, there was never a reevaluation. So the engagement policy with China went on kind of autopilot, uh, and it was never reevaluated, and it became this great legacy policy that we have to continue. And that really has been enormously damaging. Uh, for example, let me give one, I think, which is the most concrete example. Uh, engagement carried through several administrations, both uh, Republican and Democratic. But during the administration of Bill Clinton, it kind of reached a high point. And at that point, Bill Clinton allowed our national weapons laboratories, the nuclear laboratories, to have exchanges with China. Uh, within a few short years of those exchanges, the CIA issued a conclusion that through espionage, China had obtained secrets on every deployed warhead in the U.S. arsenal. That was then, that loss of, of secrets, which has never been fully resolved uh, by our investigative agencies, but it's clear that that happened, was compounded when uh, the Chinese then spread warhead technology to Pakistan. Pakistan then, through the AQ Khan nuclear supplier network, proliferated that nuclear technology to North Korea, uh, Iran, Syria, and Libya. And we found this out in 2003 when we took down the Libyan nuclear program. Among the documents turned over to investigators were Chinese language documents on how to design a small warhead for a missile. I can't think of a greater uh, damage to our security and global security than this unfettered engagement that didn't understand the nature of the threat from China. Well, a uh, rather uh, substantial point uh, that you're making. Dive into the economic mm -hmm. lane, though, um, as I was asking. Uh, just yes. develop that a bit, yeah. because that particular piece, I mean, you made very clear the kind of threat that's posed given the kind mm -hmm. of uh, uh, espionage activities taking place, but also... How is the economic uh, mm -hmm. instrument being wielded mm -hmm. in advancing China's own agenda? Yeah, um, the Chinese economic threat uh, derives from the fact that uh, they are trying, trying to use their economic power to diminish the United States. Uh, and they're doing this through several ways. But let me first touch on, the, as you mentioned, the Trump shift in policy right. from... It, one, what uh, President Trump has done, as more than any other president, has aligned U.S. national security with economic security, and that has filtered throughout the entire government, whether it's law enforcement, intelligence, Pentagon. Uh, everyone is looking at the Chinese economic threat. And as you mentioned, the White House was very successful in highlighting this threat. Uh, they issued a report with the, the stunning title called uh, China's Economic Aggression. And there was a huge policy fight with the bureaucrats saying, oh, well, we can't say economic aggression. But it, when you read the report, you understand why. And, and that's where they determined that, based on the estimates, that between $250 billion and $600 billion annually in American intellectual property and technology has been stolen by China. No nation can survive, especially a nation that is so heavily reliant on its technology and innovation, uh, with that kind of theft. So, uh, getting back to the Soviet Cold War analogy, uh, as you remember back in the Reagan administration, um, the Reagan administration did something unique toward the Soviet Union. They basically said, we are going to block Western technology uh, to Moscow. And it was a major contributing factor in the demise of, of the Soviet Union. Trump is basically doing a similar thing towards China. He's going to say, 
okay, let's see how great the Chinese economic miracle is once American technology is blocked off. And so there has been an unprecedented level of policies designed to prevent this uh, uh, flow of technology. And in fact, I, I point out in the book that, that this policy got its launch in very early 2017 at, during a Trump Tower meeting with the, pres- the newly elected president, President-elect Trump, where he met with the top executives from Silicon Valley. And they're all, to a person, their main concern was, how do we staunch the flow of American know-how to China? And so that's kind of where it's begun. Do you feel that China's predatory uh, economic policies will be uh, thwarted as a result of this particular policy approach? Do you see it having the kind of impact that it should? Yeah, I'm seeing it very, very much so. Um, In uh, the the financial warfare chapter of Deceiving the Sky, I point out that uh, in addition to the tariffs that have been posed by by the Trump administration, which are having a, an impact, uh, China has taken a, a different tack, and they're going after American capital markets uh, through those investments to, to to raise money, as well as to influence policy. Uh, take, for example, that uh, investments uh, by the uh, California Personnel Retirement Fund in Chinese companies uh, those funds could then say, well, don't sanction China because our retirement funds are invested. And, and this is happening on a large scale. I'm happy to say the administration within the past week has announced that they're going to take steps to try and curb this very unregulated uh, uh, inter- capital markets, which, again, the United States is, is the unprecedented leader in all capital markets. The administration has been quite vigilant on on this issue, and the negotiators are also have those goals, those objectives in correcting these predatory actions uh, uh, as part of the negotiations. I mean, uh, Robert Lighthizer and Steve yeah. Mnuchin are at the forefront of it. Who is she? <laughs> China's she, leader. Yeah, Xi Jinping. What, are, what is Xi Jinping? What yeah. is Xi Jinping's? He's, Goals and objectives. Well, he's, he's become the new Mao Zedong. Um, up until his ascension to the upper reaches of power, which took place around 2012 and 2013, the Chinese strategy for the world, again, they watched closely and saw the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so their uh, idea was, let's be friends with the United States. So their main deception was they weren't communists, they weren't a threat. We heard the DIA director tell me as far back as... 99, they're not a threat. Uh, and the reason for that was uh, uh, Xi Jinping's policy was bide our time, build our capabilities. That has, that has changed dramatically under Xi Jinping. Uh, Xi Jinping has announced uh, his goal is the Chinese dream. And the Chinese dream, in my view, is a really a Communist Party of China nightmare. And this is where China is seeking to uh, take its rightful place as the super, sole superpower in the world. So it's not just that they're spreading their own power and their communist system and their predatory lending practices through Belt and Road Initiative, but it also means that in order for them to achieve that, they have to go after the United States. They have to weaken their main enemy, the United States. And there we see the unfettered policy of China to uh, send opio- the opioid fentanyl into the United States to exacerbate the, the tens of thousands of deaths uh, related to the opioid crisis. Isn't it true that she himself is striving and has strived rather successfully in solidifying his own power base? 
Yes. He's done that through the uh, vote, uh, if you will, uh, which basically says he's leader for life. Uh, he also has done that even in articulating the power of the Communist Party. He talks about the revitalization of the Communist Party. Um, do you see him in any capacity as being vulnerable? Um, he has consolidated power uh, since 2012 uh, through a massive purge. Uh, it has been carried out under the auspices of uh, anti-corruption, but in fact, uh, it is that's a cover for power consolidation. And he's instituted a, an unprecedented purge, not just of middle-level officials or low-level officials, but some of the most senior officials of the Communist Party, anyone perceived as a rival, and in the PLA, anyone perceived as a potential rival is being eliminated. Uh, this has created great instability within China because the way uh, China's party, Communist Party is structured, it's very much uh, like a group of mafia families where each uh, mafia don has an uh, outreach and a network. And so by purging some of these mafia families, uh, it is creating some type of internal uh, opposition to him. Uh, that said, he has uh, strengthened the internal security apparatus in China, which is mainly the Ministry of Public Security. Um, there are numerous Chinese security organizations, security and intelligence organizations, all of them modeled after the Soviet KGB, which is, again, uh, a political police and intelligence service that serves a dual function as both intelligence as well as internal security. One of your chapters is entitled uh, The Coming Space War with China. And in fact, in that chapter, you even discuss the prospect for war itself uh, and speculate that China, uh, that uh, this cannot be ruled out. Please talk a bit about that. And then let's also discuss Graham Allison's uh, Thucydides Trap <laughs> and his... Sure prognostication that uh, the path that we're on, that war can be, is likely. Yeah. Um, the, the military threat from China is based on uh, what the Chinese called asymmetric warfare or uh, assassin's mace weapons. That's, again, going back to the Warring States era where uh, the, a weaker power does not try to confront the enemy head on, but tries to find its vulnerabilities and develop special capabilities. Uh, space warfare is one of those. Cyber is another. Uh, but space warfare is a real, real uh, vulnerability for the United States because the United States is so dependent on the multitude of satellites for communications, for finance, for intelligence, for military, for navigation. And China has understood that, and they've developed an array of weapons. Um, this is a nonfiction book, but I included a fictional scenario for how China could uh, the launch a worldwide uh, kind of a, a Pearl Harbor, a missile attack Pearl Harbor. And in the first phase of that would be knocking out key missile warning satellites. Uh, because the U.S. operates, uh, we have very, very good eyes in the sky that can pick up heat signatures of, of missile launches anywhere on Earth. And through attacking those satellites, for, for destroying as many as two dozen satellites, uh, the U.S. military could be crippled. Uh, in its ability to function. And again, we are the, the sole superpower right now, but China is working to diminish that capability. And what about Graham Allen, uh, Graham Allison's own uh, thesis? Yeah, I, what I don't your, mention, What are your views I on that? I don't mention it in the book because I don't think it's a valid uh, assessment. 
this Why? I, uh, well, I don't think that war with China is inevitable. Um, this notion that uh, in, in, in the past, going back to ancient times, that a, uh, a, a declining and rising power will auto automatically go to war. First of all, this is a, has been a major Chinese propaganda theme that uh, the United States, the, China is the rising power in the world and, and is working to rise its power, but that the United States must diminish. Uh, what we don't hear much is how the, China is trying to diminish the United States. Uh, but I, <clears throat> I see the United States as, as definitely, it's going to be the sole superpower. And <clears throat> I, I agree with uh, President Trump's strategy of peace through strength, which again goes back to the Reagan administration, where uh, they basically said, look, if you want to prevent a war, make sure that the other side doesn't miscalculate into, into stumbling into a war. And I think that's kind of what, why I disagree with the Graham Allison strategy. You also have a number of very interesting quotes. Each chapter has a, a quote. For example, on the assassin's mace in space, you have uh, a, a colonel, a Chinese colonel, saying, quote, to meet the requirements of defeating the United States in a war, the PLA should have assassin's mace, weapons with space attack capability. Um, <laughs> China has that capability today. In fact, that's what you, you have, as you said, a fictional kind of scenario, but you do talk about yes. the fact that it does have that capability today. And this is one of the areas where uh, China is ahead of the United States. You know, the United States military recently set up a, a new, brand new space command. But guess what? They have no weapons, at least no weapons that we know of. Um, China, on the other hand, has an array of very, very lethal and capable uh, anti-satellite weapons. And we first learned this back in 2007 when China tested a ground launch missile called a direct ascent missile, which targeted a weather satellite, a Chinese weather satellite. And the impact from that satellite, and I spend an entire chapter explaining how the Chinese lied about that. Uh, that's very characteristic of their approach. This satellite created tens of thousands of pieces of floating debris, which are going to threaten both uh, manned and unmanned spacecraft for uh, probably 50 to 100 years. Um, China learned from that lesson. They, they took a little bit of heat from the international community. And so that the second thing that they've developed are ground-based lasers. The best way to attack a, an orbiting satellite, uh, according to the experts I talked to, is to use a ground-based laser, a high-powered laser, all you have to do to disable or destroy an orbiting satellite is to warm up the electronics or damage the sensors or the optical cameras on those things, and they're out of business without the same debris field. Uh, in addition to both uh, missiles and, and uh, lasers, they've also developed what are called co-orbital satellites. And I highlight in the book how they tested uh, a group of small satellites, one of which had a robotic arm which could reach out and grab or crush a satellite or knock it out of orbit. Um, this is an impressive array of, uh, of weaponry. Again, they've been developing it from before 2007, and the U.S. is now trying to catch up. Well, your book really documents many areas like that. In fact, in the, so, uh, the digital area and cyber attacks, you begin with a quote, in this case, from Mao Zedong from the 1940s. And I want to read that. It says, quote, To achieve victory, 
we must as far as possible make the enemy blind and deaf by sealing his eyes and ears and drive his commanders to distraction by creating confusion in their minds. So relate that statement to cyber and Chinese cyber goals. Yeah, well, the, the Chinese cyber threat, like the space threat, is another one of their asymmetric capabilities where they're on par or ahead of the United States. And they have done a massive job of developing the ability to get inside of networks and control networks. Everything from our military networks that tell what kind of logistics we're going to need if we're going to move troops and equipment to a battlefront, uh, to our financial networks. And most alarmingly, the Chinese cyber threat has been detected inside of our electrical grid. Um, again, uh, they call this uh, cyber reconnaissance. In other words, they're mapping the networks. The United States has roughly three electric power grids. Chinese have been detected in all three. And the belief is, uh, among the military, is that in a crisis or conflict, uh, they could basically turn out the lights. Now, we have 16 critical infrastructures in addition to our electric grid, our financial communications, transportation. But when you really come down to it, the most critical infrastructure is our electric grid. And if that goes down, we're, we're, we're in deep, deep trouble. Well, on a scale of 1 to 10, and 10 being the most concerning... Um, where are we on that scale in terms of a uh, uh, continued or future uh, uh, Chinese cyber attack? I would say the Chinese cyber threat today is between seven and eight and growing. And uh, we've, uh, we've witnessed it uh, in, in many, many ways. And it's going to get worse when the Chinese have stolen masses amounts of data. Um, in the book, I highlight uh, the case of Su Bin. And he was a... Uh, PLA hacker, and he operated a network out of Vancouver that successfully broke into Boeing and stole uh, $3.4 billion worth of research on the C-17 transport. This is the military's frontline transport. I've traveled on many of them. Uh, they, they not only, for, for as little as $300,000, they were able to steal this technology. Not only did they steal it, but they sent it back to Beijing where they turned it into the Y-20, which is their brand new transport. Um, this is only one example. And I, and I did a deep dive on the Su Bin case because I said it, it is characteristic of the kinds of things that they're doing. But there have been many, many uh, massive cyber breaches, the most significant of which was the Office of Personnel Management, OPM, uh, where uh, 22 million records of federal workers, but not just any federal workers, federal workers who are engaged in classified work. Uh, this is a, uh, an amazing breach. Uh, the government notified just everyone in the, in the government, millions of people who held security clearances, that their information was compromised. How could China use this information? Uh, they could couple it with uh, artificial intelligence, which is another area that they're working on, and they could use it to identify key people. For example, they're very interested in counterintelligence. So they would use it to find out Chinese language speakers who would be part of the intelligence community. They could target those people for recruitment or other uh, dirty tricks, things like that. Uh, on the cyber front, they could use it to identify uh, network administrators at key national security agencies, target those people, learn their uh, credentials, and break into those networks. You 
uh, have so many uh, areas that you cover in terms of their uh, engagement and where they deploy different kinds of technologies, uh, uh, economic instruments, etc., uh, throughout the book. Um, I, I won't be able to cover all in the time we uh, have allotted, but let me focus on a few more. Uh, you have a chapter entitled High Tech Totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Interesting title. And you mentioned that by 2018 that China had put in place a new technological uh, a control system based in part, you say here, on an estimated 200 million surveillance cameras deployed about around the country. And the cameras are seemingly everywhere, on street poles, lamps, ceilings, traffic signals, etc. Talk about this high-tech totalitarianism. Yeah, again, this is following on my uh, important note that this is, the, this is a reflection of Chinese communist ideology. Total control and it, the elimination of any person or institution that is perceived as a threat to the party's uh, power. Um, it has become what they call a social credit system, uh, whereby just as you have a credit ranking on your credit card or your finances, they have a credit card for your politics. Um, a friend of mine told me that uh, in, in Beijing, uh, uh, where people normally cross the street, a, a person refused to cross the street when there wasn't a, a proper crossing signal because automatically he would be identified and uh, his social credit would be diminished. Um, There are also stories that uh, people who have done things that are perceived as anti-regime or anti-communist party, they're limited from traveling. They can't take trains. They can't take aircraft. uh, And people in China are actually even going to the remote parts of the country and trying to buy uh, credit from people there that don't have this problem. China has also, and a lot of this technology, these surveillance cameras, is, was stolen from the United States. They've even developed a, uh, in addition to facial recognition, uh, they have something that can actually measure the gait that you walk. So if they can't see a person's face, they can use a massive databases and high-speed computing to be able to identify individuals through their gait. <laughs> what about uh, Chinese soft power? I'm going to use the term soft power versus smart power. Yeah. How would you assess Chinese soft power? Uh, we, we know they are heavily involved in economic development in Latin mm-hmm. America, in the Middle East, in Africa. So you see it as very effective. If so, why is it effective in your opinion? Well, uh, under Xi Jinping, they have expanded uh, in a number of areas. Uh, I would say soft power is one, uh, influence operations are another. They've expanded something called the United Front Work Department, which is a party unit, which is a quasi-intelligence unit that is responsible for advancing China's strategic interests around the world. Uh, I think that one of the key features of Chinese expansionism today is something I mentioned earlier called the Belt and Road Initiative. Exactly. And this is, uh, again, this, this morphed out of uh, Xi Jinping's ideology called the China Dream. And so now the Belt and Road Initiative is a kind of a Trojan horse of Chinese expansionism. And it's targeted on the developing world. And the way it works is that China goes into a poor country and says, we'd like to build a railroad for you. And we'll even help you with financing. And then they provide the financing, and then they do it at exorbitant interest rates, 
And then when the, the poor country comes back and say, uh, we're having a trouble paying back this loan, the Chinese say, well, that's our railroad now. They're taking it over. And that kind of thing is taking place on a, on a large scale around the world, especially in the developing world. My own view is that I see this as kind of a, uh, a U.S. encirclement strategy to uh, basically take over and buy up uh, the developing world as a way to encircle the more developed world and, and that way exert power against the developed world. What about their intelligence op- operations and espionage? You have a case in here concerning Key West. Mm-hmm. Share with us uh, what exactly happened in Key West. Yes. Um, most people that are familiar with Chinese intelligence operation know about the two main spy organizations. One is the Ministry of State Security, known as MSS. It's, it's a massive intelligence and political police service. The second is uh, the second department of the PLA, or 2PLA. Um, that has recently been folded into a, a new uh, military unit, but uh, those are the two ones that the FBI has been chasing for years. Um, last year, uh, something new emerged. A, a young man was uh, booked himself into a hotel room in Key West, uh, left his wallet and things behind, had two cameras on him, and then went to Naval Air Station Key West and uh, walked around a security fence that had, had stretched in the water and began photographing uh, the antenna arrays. A contractor on the base spotted him, and MPs went and immediately arrested him. The FBI came in, and it turns out that this was a new type of Chinese spy, uh, a spy from the Ministry of Public Security, which I, I mentioned earlier is kind of the uber security service in, uh, in China today, actually eclipsing uh, the MSS and 2PLA. And so this guy was convicted and sentenced to prison, and the, the officials involved in the case said it was unusual that the Ministry of Public Security had dispatched a spy to spy on this facility, which again is a key facility for counter drug operations. It's a it's a major uh, intelligence center there. Uh, who knows what exactly he was after? But again, it's it's fr- in the counter intelligence business. You can tell what the motivation of these spies are by the targets that they're going after. You also have talked about influence making. Mm-hmm. And in this regard, one of the things that also takes place, you have really an influx of Chinese students in the United States. You also have, or we also have, uh, a number of academic institutions that have these Confucius Institutes. Mm -hmm. And there has really been a flurry of attacks on those institutions that are taking resources from the Confucius Institutes. Let me give an example in the state of Florida. I know there are a good number, and Senator Marco Rubio mm-hmm. has uh, come out uh, very vociferously against uh, these institutions existing. Um, talk a bit also and describe what's going on here, mm-hmm. because in your book you do weave together specific capabilities, specific capacities, technological capacities, but you also talk about ideology and the mm-hmm. importance of ideology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Confucius Institutes, again, it's another uh, uh, Trojan horse uh, method. Uh, and it's been very, a, a very effective uh, Chinese Communist Party influence tool, especially on American campuses. Uh, there are about 100 of these institutes. They're funded by the Chinese government. And their objective is to, 
ostensibly to teach Chinese culture. Interestingly, uh, the, the officially uh, atheist Communist Party of China is using uh, Confucius as a, as a tool, to, as an influence tool. And what has happened with these uh, institutes is that uh, they, these universities, which again are dependent on foreign students, have become dependent on these Confucius institutes and therefore they're moderating their policies. You can't find on many campuses uh, courses that teach about the evils of the Communist Party of China, this, this party which has been blamed for the deaths of up to 60 million Chinese uh, since the founding of, of Communist China. Uh, so, as you mentioned, Marco Rubio has been one of the more outspoken uh, uh, members of Congress in trying to get universities to kick these institutes off. Again, the universities are reluctant to do it because they've become reliant on it. So, again, you have this, again, finance and influence power working together. And, of course, on, on the, the student and uh, researcher front, there are at least 300,000 Chinese students. Now, not all of them are spies, but uh, all of them can be called upon uh, by Chinese security agencies to conduct work for them. In fact, just recently there was an arrest of a Chinese national uh, in the United States who was involved in what was known as the Thousand Talents Program. And this is, a, this is one of the Chinese government's uh, biggest programs to get officials who have expertise to go from the United States to China. And there was mention for the first time in the indictment in this case that this Chinese official was working with one of the, the uh, uh, Confucius Institutes on a university in, uh, up in Massachusetts, which was not identified by name, but most likely was uh, MIT or Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Interesting. Um, military might. Mm -hmm. We've touched upon a number of areas, but let's go to military might. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, the Chinese are investing in their Navy and also many countries in the region have been very concerned about what they've been witnessing in terms of the island, uh, South China Sea island disputes, mm -hmm. but also about the investment, the significant investment in the military. Um, where is it now? How would you describe it? Uh, yeah, I, I touched on this a little bit earlier. Uh, the, the Chinese military threat comes in two forms, the conventional... <clears throat> slash unconventional warfare and the nuclear and strategic. And you did mention the nuclear, yeah. right. Um, and basically they have uh, developed an array of new weapon systems. Uh, I can remember covering way back many years ago that the Chinese through a spy case in California stole details on the Aegis Battle Management System, which is a, a huge uh, phased array radar that is the, the heart of our modern Navy. And they stole that. Uh, they combined it with Chinese and Russian technology, and now they're cranking out hundreds of Aegis-type warships. Uh, in terms of submarines, again, they're behind the United States in terms of quietness. And in the submarine warfare, how quiet your submarine is is the most important thing. But they're getting quieter. Uh, on the nuclear front, it's a, uh, a major, major challenge in the sense that the Chinese nuclear threat is increasing exponentially, uh, and we know very little about it. Uh, we have, through arms control in the Cold War, as you know, we were able to engage the Soviet Union to find out things about their nuclear arsenal, and that was a, a force for stability. Uh, the Chinese have refused to engage uh, in arms control uh, debate or negotiations with the United States, and the reason is 
They believe that any discussion of their nuclear deterrent will undermine its deterrent value. And so we don't know whether they have uh, 600 warheads or whether they have 1,500 warheads or whether they have 10,000 warheads. We honestly don't know. And we, what we do know is that they have uh, something called the Great Underground Wall. And this is 3,000 miles of tunnels that are used for both storage and production of nuclear weapons. Um, so the, the nuclear threat from China is growing, and it's, it's, it's compounded by a, uh, an advanced missile system. This is another assassin's mace uh, weapon. It's called a hypersonic missile that travels at Mach 7 or, or Mach 5 or above, which is 7,000 miles per hour, and can literally outrun our missile defenses. And that's, that's the purpose of having it. In addition to being able that fast, it has the capability in a very difficult physics environment to be able to maneuver to its target. The Chinese have developed this as both a conventional warhead for perhaps anti-ship missiles, as well as a nuclear delivery vehicle. Huawei and 5G. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. A major topic of concern. Yes. Uh, also, it's been front and center in terms of our foreign policy, where the Secretary of State, uh, uh, Mike Pompeo, has raised this issue with many of our allies. Mm -hmm. Uh, some who've taken measures against uh, such technologies uh, 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 via the Chinese and others who haven't uh, listened and have are looking at going down that path. Mm -hmm. Explain the concerns sure. about Huawei and 5G. Sure. First, a little intro to 5G. Uh, 5G is not simply an advance from 4G to 5G in telecommunications technology. It is a revolutionary step above what, we've cur what we're cur currently doing with our, our handheld devices. And it requires an infrastructure. And the Chinese are seeking to corner the international market on 5G technology. And they are making it's great back, strides. It's back to your term, high-tech totalitarianism, right? Yes. <laughs> and uh, there are a few uh, Chinese telecommunications giants. Uh, all, many of them have been sanctioned by the United States. Uh, Huawei Technologies is the uh, most concerning uh, it is a uh, it is a uh, state-run company masquerading as a private company, and uh, its uh, leader was a former PLA electronics warfare expert. And right now, there's a huge battle. The uh, Trump administration has indicted uh, the CFO. Uh, she's being held uh, in house arrest in uh, outside Vancouver, Canada, and there there is a case against her, which shows that uh, Huawei has been illegally conducting business in Iran. Um, it's kind of a backdoor way to try to deal with the, the Huawei threat. Uh, so far, U.S. efforts around the world have not succeeded in getting as many allies as should be about this technology. Uh, one way the United States has been influencing others not to use Huawei technologies, which can be used for uh, intelligence gathering. And that's, that's really the, the key concern. But they've, uh, they've said that the United States will not share technology or not share intelligence with key partners and allies that have Huawei uh, technology, Huawei routers and things. And the reason is, is that there's a belief that, uh, and, and in fact, it's more than a belief. We, we learned from the Snowden documents that the National Security Agency was able to penetrate Huawei equipment and, and actually spy on the spies uh, who, the, that the Chinese were spying on. Um, so we know that there, in addition to that, they have what is known as an intelligence law, which requires all state companies in China or 
ostensibly private companies to provide data for Chinese intelligence and security services. I want to go down two last paths in the time that we have remaining, one of which is foreign affairs a number of years back uh, did a poll, uh, conducted a poll. And in the poll, the question was, is Russia a geopolitical uh, challenge or Russia a geopolitical threat? And it was interesting because half of the foreign policy experts basically in varying degrees had said yes. But the other half focused on China and very specifically said that, no, that it's not Russia, it's China. Let's take a look at both. Uh, you've sure. covered both. Uh, uh, you've written about both. Mm -hmm. So where on the scale do you fit? Uh, uh, where is China? Where is Russia right. in terms of geopolitical threats to the United States and our allies? Yeah, simply put, they're both threats. But in terms of uh, magnitude, uh, China is by far the greater threat. And I think this was a little confusing Confusing, uh, confusing in the Trump administration's national security strategy and national defense strategy, where they coupled both China and Russia together. Again, this has been a very a bureaucratic ploy for many years to try and diminish the Chinese threat by elevating the Russia threat. Um, the foreign policy community, the academic community, is on, to kind of, on a kind of autopilot when it comes to Russia, and that's based on the Cold War. During the Cold War, we fielded numerous, numerous experts on the Soviet threat, and they continued. So there's kind of a, uh, a Russia threat culture within this community, and, and that's, that's rapidly changing. And there, again, there were much fewer China experts. Uh, the language was more difficult. The culture was more difficult. That's changing rapidly now. Uh, I was recently at Stanford where uh, I heard an academic there who was not necessarily uh, concerned about the China threat, and he briefed a, a bunch of reporters, and he, he literally said that I'm really afraid of what's happening as we see this emerging threat from China. The other thing to look at is that you, uh, the, the Chinese economy is probably seven times larger than the Russian economy. Uh, where the problem with the Russia comes in is that they are developing uh, a series of uh, Vladimir Putin's doomsday weapons, uh, hypersonic missiles, a nuclear powered cruise missile, uh, massive large uh, ICBMs, a number of uh, very threatening weapons. Uh, the, the, the Russia threat, however, I believe is, is limited to Vladimir Putin and his regime. And in fact, one of the recommendations I make in Deceiving the Sky is that the United States should play the uh, Russia card against China. We, we need uh, Russia as an ally. Um, that will not happen as long as Vladimir Putin is in power. But you know, uh, dissident Russians have said, oh, Putin could be bought out. He, you could give him back his, the billions that he's taken from, uh, from Russia. You put forth a number of, of recommendations mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the book. Uh, uh, what are some of your recommendations as sure. to how we can really tackle this challenge? Yeah. Uh, I think the key recommendation that I make is for the U.S. government and United States as a whole to recognize the true nature of the China threat, as I call it, and and really declare China much more than a strategic competitor, but as an actual adversary or enemy. Um, the national security strategy and national defense strategy took important steps in identifying China as a strategic competitor. Uh, to me, that's a halfway measure, uh, basically as a sop to the pro-engagement and pro-business community who say, Let's just keep trading with China. Let's just keep doing business with them as a way. 
And the other problem is that after 40 years of engagement, our economy is so intertwined with China. That's beginning to change. Uh, a lot of businesses are pulling out. They're looking for other markets, India, Vietnam, places like that. And so uh, I think we, it's time to declare uh, China the... And, and if we do that, if we say China's the adversary, then that will be, go a, a long way towards helping us decouple. Um, another recommendation is to create a parliament in exile. Let's organize pro-democracy Chinese uh, around the world, bring them together once a year, and create uh, ideas and policies for reforming this system into a democratic system. Uh, have a meet and then publish that and distribute it electronically in China. Uh, these are very simple things that could be done. Uh, the, the other thing I talk about is uh, expanding missile defenses. We saw in the case of South Korea that when the United States deployed the theater high-altitude area defense, or THAAD missile defense, a very effective anti-missile system, the Chinese punished South Korea to the tune of 3 to $4 billion by uh, causing problems for them. Well, this is a sign that China is not, uh, doesn't like these missile defense because their military is so missile-oriented. They have so many different types of missiles. So let's start deploying the THAAD uh, missile battery uh, throughout the world, uh, in Mongolia, uh, in India, uh, in Southeast Asia, in Australia, and all these places. And let's, let's really encircle China and, and mitigate the China missile threat. Where does India fit into the strategy, uh, given India's own objectives in the region? And also, going back to the issue of Russia, uh, say uh, just a little bit more about where Russia might fit mm -hmm. in. Uh, I ask that question because are you concerned about a closer Chinese-Russia alliance that's emerging. Some experts think that that's happening. Other experts counter that and say that yeah. that's not happening and yeah. will not happen. Yeah. Uh, first on India, uh, the uh, India relationship with the United States is growing. Uh, India is kind of like uh, the United States in that they've had this uh, decades-long debate about China with pro-China and uh, anti-China uh, Communist Party concerns. And so they're beginning to wake up to the China threat. And they have a, a border dispute with China, and they're very, they're very concerned. Uh, when I talk to Indian officials here, uh, it is the main national security threat for China, uh, for, for India. Yeah. Um, as for Russia and China growing closer together, we've seen in the past couple of years, and in fact just within the past few weeks, some joint exercises, military exercises. And this is kind of unusual. Russia has been having large-scale exercises, and China has been sending forces. Um, I think that the Russians are a bit cautious about the relationship with China. Traditionally, uh, Russia has feared China taking over its uh, Far East, uh, the Russian Far East, it, which is very vulnerable, uh, low population and few defenses. So uh, there have been a lot. I think uh, Putin has aligned with Beijing, basically because he's against the United States, so it's an anti-U.S. motivation. Uh, but it, it is a concern to see uh, the growing alliance between uh, Russia and China. But it's mainly focused as an anti-U.S. alliance. If you had to pick out a vulnerability of China, what do you think is China most vulnerable on? I think they're most vulnerable on the regime legitimacy. Um, the Chinese are going to be celebrating uh, se 70 years uh, of communist rule, and uh, it's not a, it's not, it should not be a cause for celebration. Again, when you look back at the, uh, the massive uh, deaths that have been caused, there was a, 
a book published many years called The Black Book of Communism, which estimated the deaths from communism to be 60 million people. Uh, this, is, this is the legacy of the Communist Party of China, and it needs to be held accountable for that. And I think that by exposing that and exposing the true nature of the uh, communist regime, that it would go a long way towards really bringing about a, a democratic change, a peaceful democratic change in China. And Bill, let me ask you if uh, in pitching your book to policymakers, what do you want them to know about this book? What is the most essential, maybe top three points that and message that you want to leave with them? Yeah. Um, this is the most important book that anyone can read about the China threat. And there, there are basically three themes, or two or three themes, but the, the main one is that uh, China is a nuclear-armed communist dictatorship that is growing stronger and more threatening. And second, we've really missed China. Our intelligence has missed it. Our policy community has missed it. And we really, really need to uh, admit that. And I think that uh, we're starting to see a, a much greater debate in policy circles about that. Uh, th this is the key. And then thirdly, we, we've got to bring about a peaceful, democratic change within China. That's ultimately the way to mitigate the threat from China, is to bring about the end of the Communist Party of China. And of course, uh, Xi Jinping's main objective is to keep the Communist Party in power and ultimately to become a global hegemon for supremacy and dominance over the entire world. Bill Gertz, thank you so much for coming today. Uh, much appreciated. And let me just uh, start from what we, where we began, uh, deceiving the sky inside communist China's drive for global supre uh, supremacy, excuse me, supremacy, uh, is certainly a fascinating book, and you've really done a lot of work and research that you've put into this. So thank you again for coming today. Thank you, I, Paula. It's an interesting, interesting read. Thank you. Thank you.